Welcome to The Whole Truth, where two wholesalers help financial professionals build great practices and thrive in a rapidly changing industry. We'll bring you the stories and voices from those on the front lines of this change, and we'll have some fun along the way. We're building a community of financial professionals who are growing, forward-thinking, and want to get better. Thanks for listening and contributing to the discussion. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. We are joined by Jake Willis, Regional Vice President at Touchstone Investments, and Dan Aloka, Partner and Head of Digital and Integrated Marketing at ProSec, a marketing and communications firm utilized by Touchstone Securities, Inc. And welcome, everybody, to The Whole Truth from the Bay Area, California. I am Steve Side. And from Atlanta, Georgia, I'm Kurt Dupuy. All right, so big episode today, jam-packed episode. We have two guests. First, we have our good friend, Jake Willis, a wholesaler from Southern California. He's going to be talking to us about principles of persuasion. Just about everybody, I would think, listening to this episode is in sales in some way or another, and understanding the principles around persuasion, the principles around sales about how people make decisions, really important to hear and can really help your sales process. So we're excited to go through those with Jake. After that, we're going to have Dan Aloka from ProSec. So let me talk about ProSec first. ProSec is a marketing consulting firm, multiple offices around the country. Dan specifically is partner and head of digital and integrated marketing practice at the firm. He is working actively with Touchstone right now, has an amazing background. He's worked with firms like TIA, Nuveen, PIMCO, Morgan Stanley, and others. So he's a real specialist when it comes to our industry. So back to Jake Willis, who we're going to start off with right now. How do I describe Well, are you fifth in California history and assist at the high school level? Is that a good way to introduce you? Something like that. I, uh, it's, let's call it top 15 at this point. I, I, I don't know. But are you lying to me about the number of assists you had? Is that he how you got it? You know. Who knows? <laughs> It's just Jason Kidd, a couple of people than, than you, right? That's kind of the deal. Which basically means I can't shoot. Yeah. That's, I was say, that, how, how did your jumper look? <laughs> that, that's, that's what it means, because I can't shoot. In the one horse game I played with him, I beat him, although several months later, maybe years later, he claimed he let me win. So that's, you know, that's, uh, that's who we're dealing with right now. By the way, did you know he had a jump shot, Kurt? Who? You. Did yeah. Kurt know that Steve has a the, jump shot? So we've talked about this. And, and I always just am, am, am rude to side because I just I haven't known him to be athletic, but apparently like he played high school baseball and apparently he's got a jump shot now. So I'm continuously yeah. surprised besides athleticism. Yeah, but I was surprised too. Not gonna lie, I've never seen it in action though. So I, I, I still until I see it though, I'm not sure I actually believe it. You know what that means? You look horrible as a human being. I can't believe you can handle athletics. That's what you guys are both saying to me right now. I mean, indirectly, kind of nice. Yeah, kind that's of. fair. Anyways. To our show. So talk about these principles of persuasion. Where do they come from? Why is it an important topic? Yeah. So I would say, first off, I've always been a big psychology person, love learning about people, what makes them tick, why they do the things they do. And then as I've gotten older, I feel like in business, uh, it's kind of transitioned into the psychology of sales. I don't know if you guys do this, but do you guys ever, like if you're buying something, you're out like at a restaurant and you have a really good experience. For me, I go, you know, what What made me want to buy that? And did anybody do anything to kind of trigger that sale? Do you guys do that at all? Do you notice basically good salespeople? A hundred percent. Just the restaurant example, although there's numerous, 
You ever walk to a restaurant and you can tell right away that they just don't care at all about your business whatsoever? I mean, I, I see it from the negative side, but also like good service is amazing. The people that actually care at their jobs, it, it seems to stand out these days to me. Getting into the heads of advisors or, you know, whatever you're selling really, I think can be as important. You know, why are they buying? What are the reasons they buy? So my old national sales manager, he was a naval interrogator. Um, so Ooh. he, yeah, by the way, made for interesting interviews. I'm sure. So he introduced this to the sales group. It was a book written by Robert Cialdini. And it's really about six different ways essentially to persuade people to buy and kind of the psychology behind it. So it's funny, my, my wife and I have always had this back and forth because she's always, I mean, we've been married for 10 years, right? But she's like, I hate salespeople. And I'm like, well, that's a little hurtful because you didn't realize we're married. But um, <laughs> when this Daniel Pink book came out, um, I'm going to blank on the name of it, but it basically said everybody's in sales, right? Everyone's trying to get their own outcomes. And and she's a pharmacist, like a hospital setting. There's the same thing. Like she's trying to help people out to gain favor so that they think they know she's smart and competent. Like same thing with kids, right? Like we want our kids to like us and we're persuading our kids as well as our parents. Everybody's in sales. So I, I mean, this, whether or not you work in this industry or not, the art of persuasion is evergreen. Are you saying that I'm doing, I'm failing at sales with my kid because my kid seems to not <laughs> lately, MJ, she, she seems to not like me that much. So you're saying I'm not getting these principles of persuasion. Is that what you're implying? That, I mean, kids, kids have so many phases. I'm not going to pretend to know what phase you're in. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> those little suckers can turn on the dime. <laughs> Steve, maybe you need to try one of the, uh, a different one of the six. Maybe you're, you're you trying go. one or two of them. Let's get into those principles. All Head right. Us. The first one, maybe the biggest one, is the principle of reciprocity. People are wired, humans are wired, that if somebody does something for you, uh, you want to do you want to do something back for them. Uh, it's interesting. He talks about the reason behind that, which is it's kind of I think an interesting discussion. He says because most people don't want to feel indebted to others if someone's done something maybe out of their way, provided value. Uh, you, you don't want to feel like you owe them. Do you guys have that same feeling when someone does something for you? Do you know that scene in the office with Andy and Dwight when they're giving gifts? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And like they don't wait three seconds before returning the favor. That, that, I'm right. sorry. That, that's what I immediately think of. Maybe you're out hosting an event or whatever. Um, and all the advisors that'll be like, no, no, no. You, you know, you don't have to buy my, my drink or dinner because clearly they don't maybe have an intention of doing business. They're, they're getting in front of that. If you can help them grow their business, uh, if you can help them be more efficient, that probably holds more more weight, I think, in the in the reciprocity game than probably, you know, a happy hour or, or a game. I'm going to change this towards the financial professional perspective. I mean, just add value. It's, just add value. Don't think about it. Just before you even worry about, you know, you know, charging, uh, charging a fee. I know that seems kind of obvious, but you know, it's worth saying. So that's reciprocity. So the second one is commitment. Um, and he says that people want their beliefs to be consistent with their values. You're going to do what you say, um, that you're going to stand by your word. I think some of the, uh, feedback as wholesalers we get is we don't do enough of this, making them feel important, right? is kind of the way I view it. What's a challenge on our side of the business is um, 
actually doing what you say you're going to do. That's a big challenge for us. And, and I don't oh, think yeah. that, I, I don't think that people do that purposely. I think you're in a meeting. Oh, we can do that. Oh, I'll get that to you. Oh, absolutely. Then you're on to six other meetings and, and you don't do any of it or half of it or whatever. I don't know if that's as prevalent on financial professionals, but I'm going to guess that there's probably some level where things could drop off, whether it's doing what you say you're going to do or just following up or being present for each of my opportunities, for each of my clients, I'm going to show more commitment. I'm I'm going to guess that that's something that would benefit them as well. Absolutely. And I think you're right, Steve. I think we all do it. Like we get so busy, right? We're, we're doing things and it, it almost comes back to segmentation too a little bit, right? Because you probably can't have that same level of commitment, right? If, if we're being real with every single engagement we have. Well, I, I don't want to belabor this too much because, and we've talked about, you know, having too many households, right? This is what that affects is the commitment level, the, the ability to, dri- to, to, uh, to deliver the type of experience and commitment that you want to show. Um, but sometimes people don't realize that on our side of the industry. They think, you know, wholesalers are out there and they could just call on everybody. No, like we have a certain number of relationships too. Like we cannot be everything to everybody and there's a big universe out there. So I think it's, it's a good principle, I think, for all parts of the industry. Number three, social proof. He says there's nothing like feeling validated based on what others are doing. What are other advisors doing, right? I mean, clearly, you know, what's your firm think? things like that. But I get a lot of guys that are wondering what their peers are doing. And I think that really stands to this principle is that as humans, I don't want to say we're a herd mentality because that's that's kind of taking away from the creativity that we all have. But, we are. <laughs> but, we can, but, we, but we kind of are, right? Like, yeah. you know, what what are other people doing? It's safer too, right? I, I think this is one of the superpowers of wholesalers. Because we work with, talk to, collaborate with, hear from so many financial professionals. I think wholesalers can add value in a lot, of, a lot of different ways. I think this is probably one of the most universal ways this, that we can. Like, yeah. What are people doing out there? Like, If you don't have an opinion about that, you're, you're not a very good wholesaler. But like, what are people doing for marketing? How are people growing their business? How are they scaling? You know, if you don't have thoughts around that, um, you're probably not a very good wholesaler. But that's a great value. One of the challenges I think in our industry as well is that versus maybe some other industries is that really the big question everyone's asking is what's going to happen next, right? Like where's the market Mm -hmm. going? And without a crystal ball, nobody knows that. But we clearly need to have opinions and people want to hear, you know, about what other people are doing. What immediately popped in my head was was niches as you guys were both talking, you know, that Curtis, just what you said, like we, we're in this unique position because we talked to all these financial professionals. Well, if you've got a niche and your niche is dentists, I'm making it up and you're talking to dentists all day, you probably could be sharing what's going on in the world of dentistry. What I'm trying to figure out in my head and work through is the general practitioner, financial professional, how they can use this principle in their business today. That's what I'm trying to work out. And I think it's maybe just sharing like what other clients broadly are doing, but I don't know. It seems a lot more powerful if you have a niche. The best content you can produce, the questions that clients are asking and the problems that you're solving for them, because yeah. chances are other folks are dealing with that too. I mean, to me, that that's the, 
that's the easiest way to that's apply the that. crux of it yeah moving on to number four it's authority basically he says that it's funny the the tagline says you will obey me in our industry you know i kind of think of dr david kelly people like that that when they talk people listen I have a little bit of a background because, you know, my brother's a, a J.P. Morgan wholesaler is, is the flows tend to go in directions of firms that have these heads that really have a lot of weight in our industry. I think for advisors, it's clearly uh, that's an easy one, right, with their clients is that they have a, a view of what they're trying to do, that they're not wishy-washy, right, with how they're talking to clients. You could definitely do that in a meeting one-on-one, show your expertise, but I think there is some value in doing other things where people can hear you before they even get in a meeting, you know, whether that's recording videos or podcasts or having a good website, all the marketing stuff that establish you as a thought leader. I think that that matters. That's the first thing I, I, I thought of. Yeah, I think it almost ties into your next guest, right? Talking about marketing. I think Yeah. I think those two go together really well. Marketing and, and having a voice, right? And authority. Cause you don't just get it. It takes time and I do think marketing is a big part of it. And I think, you know, in our own individual territories though, that's that's our job as wholesalers, right? Is kind of getting that voice and then having some authority, right? Hey, what would you do? You know, would you yeah. would you use the the mid cap or would you would you go large cap right now? Yeah. And again, we don't live in a crystal ball world, but having an opinion and being authoritative about it does work. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is so many wholesalers that I've observed actually shy away from that. They just want to nod the head exactly what the financial professional is telling them. Oh yeah. I agree with you. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. And then they feed them something. yeah, I'm the op- I love like mentally sparring with people. I, I am <laughs> even so... if I don't believe it. I, I just think that's <laughs> oh, like, that's totally different. So <laughs> you'll just do it for no reason, even if you don't believe it. That's just hilarious. Well, I mean, it's it's the same with politics, right? Like, uh, so few people know my actual politics because I just like taking the other side of stuff. Because that's that's how you learn. But that's a whole other conversation. Well, Correct. that's fine. I agree. I agree. And even Steve, we've had a couple. You know, where I tell you, I play a little devil's advocate just to yeah. Uh, just to spice it up. Yeah. I, I, and, and, you know, I don't shy away from that at all. Like, I don't think, you know, my, my opinion or my viewpoint is the only one. And I think if you're a financial professional and you have someone just going to come in and nod their head, I mean, what kind of value are you getting out of that? I mean, right. got to have an opinion. Okay. Principle number five, this, to me, this is probably one of the bigger ones like reciprocity. And it says liking, and it says the more you like someone, the more you'll be persuaded by them. My thoughts on this one, it's always been to try to find a commonality, right, with an advisor. And I think number one, that starts with listening. And yes. we, you know, you hear a lot of sales things about being an active listener, and I think we all try to do it. And then a lot of times we get into meetings, and I do it myself, we all do it you kind of start getting going on something, whether it's, you know, a product or even about yourself. And then you're talking more than the advisor and you really didn't get enough information. Have you ever been to a conference and like you, and you meet another wholesaler and you're like, so I mean, a big part of being a wholesaler is being likable, right? right? Like no like and trust. And you talk to somebody for like two minutes and you're like, this person is awful. How, how, do, they, how do they do this job? Uh, financial professionals know different, but yeah, I mean, I, you, you know it when you see it, but you really know it when you, when it, in its absence. 
likability is complex, and I certainly don't have all the answers. I think you two are both a lot more likable than I am. But one of the things that, you know, your point of like the listening and not constantly talking, I think most financial professionals listening to this right now probably have heard that a million times. But, you know, it's one of those things that's worth hearing a million times. It's worth seeing like, what can I do in my client reviews? What can I do in my prospect meetings that opens the person up more, that allows them to speak more? And then it's, you know, it's remembering I had kind of a master spreadsheet of advisors, kids' names, colleges, huge um, stuff they huge. do, right? That kind of stuff goes, I, to me, probably is the most impactful. I'll give you a quick story just because it was recent with my, my guy in San Diego who Steve knows and met him, spent a whole day with him. Great guy was talking about his kids a lot. His kids play baseball and his kid was like in a home run derby, I think like the following week. So I called him that next week. And the first thing I said, Hey, how Jake doing his home run derby. Right. And he lit up, right. He's like, he won. He got super excited. And then the conversation after that was so easy because, you know, he felt like I did care, which, you know, I did. But the fact that I remembered his kid's name, that he was going to be in the home run derby, immediately made that conversation a lot easier. And it's being genuine about it too, right? I think that's that's the one thing in our business is if you actually do care, <laughs> they'll be able to feel it. Yeah. The fact that you knew his first name, I think is big. Like just thinking back to myself, I would have probably said like, well, how is your, your son's home run derby? The name, I wouldn't have even remembered the name. So that's awesome that you do that. I think the other thing where I found this really powerful and it, it, it hit me was it's the immediate follow-up is, is one thing. If you can remember that stuff over time, that's like amazing. When you meet that guy next year, Hey, how's Jake doing? Is he still playing ball? It's one of those things I wish I would be better at. When somebody remembers something about you and your personal life, it does feel good, right? Like it's, yeah, it's, it really does. It's, it's one of those things that it's, it's hard to say that that's not impactful. To me, like I said, that's probably sales 101 right there is finding ways to be likable, being likable. And then the last one is scarcity. When you believe something is in short supply, you want it more. I think in life, this is absolutely a principle of persuasion. I would even tell you in, in the dating world. <laughs> so funny. I was just going to say, are you talking about your dating, Jake? Right. Uh, but it's true, right? Like when you're, when you're a little bit less available. Yeah. You're, you know. Is the word now thirsty? Is that, is that <laughs> the word the kids are using when you come off too thirsty? When you come off too thirsty. Um, it's true though, right? Because you, you just go, hmm, that person's a little bit too available. Or, you know, I can have a meeting with them whenever I want. That drips of, uh, of being needy. Desperation. I, I absolutely love this one. It is so obvious to me when salespeople of any shape or form are too desperate for the sale and when those that just value themselves and are not living and dying by every sale. This gets back to that one principle we talked with with a guest of ours, uh, Elise Archer, yeah. abundance selling versus, I mean, when, you, when, when you're when you not like coming off with that desperation and you're just confident, hey, listen, I've got something really great and valuable to offer. It, if it works for you, great. If it doesn't, like I'm going to help someone else. I mean- I don't know. I think that's huge. You get in these periods, right, where maybe sales aren't as great and, you know, you're scratching and clawing, but that energy you're projecting, yeah. uh, it, it doesn't help you. I'll just say that. It does not help you 
But when you're kind of comfortable, and again, it's not always based on how well you're doing, but I've had periods in my time where things are going well, I couldn't be more comfortable in my own skin, and it radiates, right? And and people yeah. are drawn to it. There's a hockey reference, uh, gripping the stick too tight, you know? Yeah. You have pretty good meetings that day after the $10 million win comes in in the morning, right? Like, there's just an energy there. There's a, there's a flow there. All right. So that was great. Six principles of persuasion. You know, I I could say I've heard things like that throughout my career. I think it's one of those things you want to keep hearing from time to time. Like, even though I heard these principles of persuasion in 2023, I think they'd be useful to hear them again in 2024 and 2025. It's things we want to uh, revisit. So, uh, Jake, thank you so much for, for coming on and walking through all that. We definitely appreciate it. You're definitely welcome. Right now, we're going to transition to our segment two with Dan from Prozac. This is The Whole Truth. Stick with us. All right. Well, welcome to our conversation with Daniel Aloka from Prosec. Um, we've we've got a professional marketing person on the show, which is very exciting because, Kurt, I don't think you or I view ourselves as as good at marketing or professional in any way. Maybe you do. I don't know. No, I, I proudly wear the badge of honor of being unprofessional at marketing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, Daniel, we need you. So thank you for being on the show. I don't know how much I'm going to contribute, but thanks for having me. You work for an organization called ProSec, which we are doing a lot of work with. Let's start with an overview of that organization. Yeah. So ProSec's uh, integrated marketing communications firm. We focus on financial services. So we work with a lot of investment managers, asset managers, hedge funds, private equity firms, and the like. And uh, we really pride ourselves on being good business partners and helping businesses meet outcomes. So that's us in a nutshell. How did you get in this business and end up at ProSec? I started my, my kind of financial career. I worked in Morgan Stanley in the wealth management division uh, and did a number of things there uh, in the corporate office and in marketing and, and got in the digital sort of when this makes me feel old now, but kind of when the Internet was really coming of age and Google was becoming a thing and we were going from you know, people having blackberries in their pockets and that, that whole thing. Uh, and I just fell in love with it. So I worked, uh, I worked at Morgan Stanley, I uh, worked at PIMCO and, and Nuveen. Uh, and I decided I really wanted to put my skills to work as a, as a consultant and helping as many brands as I could with marketing. Could you give us some insight, very broad strokes? Like, what are you working on as it pertains to, let's call it digital marketing today? And how has that changed? Not 30 years, you know, 20, 30 years ago, but like maybe in the last five years, how that's changed. Yeah, yeah I think what the big change is, you know, digital marketing's just become marketing. Um, the two things are, are almost synonymous. You know, there's there's no print department at a company for a reason. And, and a lot of companies don't have a digital department uh, anymore either for the same sort of reason. It's one more tool in the toolbox that helps us deliver client outcomes, that helps us deliver better service. Gotcha. As it pertains to, to our audience, where's the biggest gap? We see what a lot of our clients are doing. I think there's a bunch of them, but I don't really have a sense uh, of how to grade or determine magnitude for how big a gap is with financial professionals. Can you illuminate that for us? Yeah. I mean, I think the best financial professionals have realized marketing's gone from a megaphone where you tell everybody what you want to say to you've got to have a, a microphone too and listen. Um, and, and what I mean by that is things like social media have changed the game forever. So now if you're an advisor, you can build a community online. You can talk about the things that you're interested in that you think your your customers or your potential clients might be interested in. 
And you can give them a voice in that conversation too and learn from them. Your ability to build community, which is obviously central to being a successful financial professional, is now online. And that to me is what changed the game significantly. It, it doesn't have to feel like marketing as much anymore. It can feel more like content and ideas and interests. And I think that's the big, big shift. So that's interesting. So you're seeing financial professionals have success with social media. Is that a fair statement? Definitely. Yeah. And I think it's, it's success with realistic expectations. So there's not going to be, I mean, it might maybe happen sometimes, right? But it's not going to be like you post a social media post and 10 people are going to call you and want to do business with you. I think that's unrealistic. It's more about embracing the long sales cycle that it is to be a financial professional, realizing that you've got to become a member of the community or communities that you're in and using social media as one more place to do that. Over time, people feeling like they get to know you before they even meet you or they've met you and then they go online and get a better feel for you. I think that's the big role that social media plays is it's kind of keeping someone connected with you for a longer period of time over what could be years. Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear you speak that way about appropriate expectations and the role of it and and the speed of it, because I, I often think sometimes when I'm having conversations, you're like, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I went on these social media platforms. I've tried it for a little while. You know, I haven't really seen any. And it's a short term, like, how do I generate leads right away? Whereas that's not realistic expectations. But they just repost like the firm yeah. stuff, right? The firm puts something out. I, I post it on LinkedIn and I expect stuff to happen. Um, right. It's like one of my favorite follow-up questions with people with social that say they're doing social. It's like, well, what, like, what's the strategy for engaging with your post? Like somebody says, Hey, this is great. Or somebody asks a question and like 90% of the time, even if you're just repurposing the, the, the company stuff, like there's no engagement online either, which sounds, tells me that we're the early innings of this. Is that fair? I think that's right. I also think a lot of people are just using it incorrectly. When we talk about social media, especially, if you choose to follow someone or a company or whatever it might be, there's that word there. You chose to follow that person. And I think sometimes the, the person creating the social media post forgets that the burden's on you a little bit to create content and information that's interesting to the people hmm, yeah. who made that choice to kind of be a part a part of, of your life that they owe you nothing right um right and i think sometimes having that mindset of am i just telling everybody what, what i want them to hear so that they'll do business with me or am i being thoughtful and creating things that add to their lives and then over time they're going to want to be you know more a part of my life it's not like putting an ad in the wall street journal it's it's a different transaction any other recommendations that you have, social media or otherwise, around marketing and financial professionals? Yes. I think financial professionals, brands, marketing, sales, it almost doesn't even matter the industry you're in. You have to look at yourself from outside of yourself and you have to ask yourself really hard questions. So I'm a financial professional in a big city center. There's only so many potential clients. So when that person wakes up in the morning and is like, you know what, today's the day I'm going to go and build a relationship with somebody, why should it be you? And if your answer is because I'm good at financial advice or I'm high integrity or that's not enough, um, yeah. so is everybody else. And chances are they're better at those things than maybe even you are. So I think sitting down and thinking about truly why would someone hire you is the most important question to nail then everything else becomes easy because you know why you exist in the marketplace. 
Then you start to make content that supports why. You start to host events that kind of tie to your why. It can't just be another event. It has to be an event that is on brand for you personally. And I think that's where most businesses struggle and most financial professionals struggle is what makes them different from the person quite literally next door uh, in their branch uh, and probably an elevator ride down at a different firm in another branch. When you're talking to an organization and they really aren't able to define that, does your firm help them work through it? Is there, you know, other resources that you send them to to help bring that through? Like, what's that conversation like for for firms that and, and individuals that are struggling with that? There's a lot of frameworks you can use. So one of them is this framework of why, how, what. There's a guy named Simon Sinek that put that out, and I think it's a good yeah. way to think about brand framework when you're thinking about yourself. You start with why. Why do you exist in the marketplace? What's your purpose in that marketplace? And by the way, purpose does not have to mean um, sort of pie in the sky, big idea thing. It can just be that you you feel like you bring a very practical purpose to the marketplace. I think that how piece is so important too. So how you do business, what's your client experience, what's it feel like to walk in the door at your office, deal with your staff, You know what's the follow-up look like? All those process steps are part of marketing too because yeah. that's what's going to drive your referral network. I think exactly zero people will leave and say, my advisor got me 7.2% and yours got you 7.1%, so my, mine's better. It's more right. like I feel like I get good advice. I feel like I'm listened to. I feel like I'm followed up with. Right? Those are all the things that make the difference. So that how is really important. The what is the easiest. Uh, every advisor, ultimately financial professional, doing similar things. I think it's how they do them that make them stand out. Yes, we do help with that um, with, with certain organizations. And, and I think it's a little bit of you have to do the homework and we can give you the guidance, but we can't answer that one for you. Yeah, that makes total sense. This is a thing that keeps coming up is like, it's your brand differentiation. We talk about like, we had the benefit of, of working in a high margin industry where people haven't prioritized that, but as kind of the structure gets flattened over the years, how important that is. So Simon's the next great place to start. That's what we should just start telling people when they talk about, well, how do I build my own brain? It's like, just go read a book because that's going to yeah. give you way more than you already have. That should be our go-to. <laughs> For sure. I'm going to um, apologize to to anyone listening, wirehouse folks. I don't mean anything negative by this question. In fact, the majority of my clients are wirehouse, so please understand this. But I'm interested in what you're seeing in marketing and and social media, et cetera, in wirehouses versus you know non wirehouses. From the outside looking in, it seems like the folks and the the financial professionals that are doing marketing really well seem to be more independent because they have a little bit more freedom. Um, mm -hmm. One is that your observation, and two, how, you know, how would you make recommendations to both pools? Would it be different or the same? Yeah, I think it's a, it's this like tale of two cities, right? So the big firms are successful because they've built great brands and they hire great people and they train them well and they have the platforms in place to enable success. And I think a lot of the trust factors that an advisor or professional might have to overcome are overcome by the fact that someone's working at a big firm, right? They work at XYZ firm, therefore they must be good and trustworthy and vetted. So I think they don't have to market as much uh, as a result. And I think if you're an independent and you're out there and you've hung your own shingle, you have none of that. Um, what you have yeah. are the clients you've developed and built who know you well, 
and your reputation in the community, which obviously are crucial. But outside of that circle, probably no one's heard of you. And I think because of that, you have to do a lot harder work to stand out. I think that's probably the big difference. So the independents and the RAs, they have more freedom, but they also have a higher burden or a hill to climb. So in that context, um, the fact that someone at a wirehouse may not have to market as much as because they have the brand. So does the, it, the fact that they're restricted may not matter that much, or do you still kind of challenge those wirehouse advisors to really be creative within that context? It's both a, a strength and a weakness to, to be working in an organization that has a great big brand that you have little control over. You kind of have to, as an advisor in a big wirehouse, adopt the brand that you're, you're working within. And that does come with restrictions and there's only so much you can do. And, and I think that's always something someone needs to think about. That said, I think differentiation at a local level is way more important because that's where advisory is happening, right? You, you're up, you're working in a city and a community and you have to find a way to stand out there, not just against advisors at other firms, but against the advisors in your own office. So why, why is someone gonna hire you and, and not the person next door? is a question I think you have to ask yourself. I think the ones that do it really well, irrespective of what kind of structure they work in, they're the ones that sit down and figure out what's my marketing plan gonna be? What am I really passionate about outside of finance? And how do I, over a long period of time, build a community that people are gonna wanna engage with? So some people are really into cars, they're car guys, they go to the car shows, they genuinely become friends with a network of people who also happen to maybe be doing you know well in their lives and they're a part of the community and contributing to it not just taking from it and that to me is crucial for any kind of relationship-based trust-based sales model i think a lot of salespeople fail trying to sell before they built a relationship i've told people that have zero marketing plans like find something you enjoy doing and spending money on just go do that you'll go spend the time go spend the money and you're going to bump into dollars and find business Exactly. We, we had talked a little bit earlier about differentiation. Let's talk about asset managers a little bit, which I think struggle with some of the same things. And maybe we could use Touchstone as a case study. So, you know, you're working with us now and you're allowed to be honest. We're not, you know, <laughs> what do you think we're doing well from a strength and marketing perspective? Where were our weaknesses and what do you see from other asset managers? Is it a, is it a difference asset management wise relative to financial professionals? Definitely. I think you guys have a lot of strengths. And the biggest strength to me was the market position is extremely clear. So distinctively active, not just a slogan, backed by product, backed by process, backed by how you pick managers, right? Everything's symbiotic with what you stand for. And if you think about the asset management marketplace as a barbell, you know, on, on each side, you have kind of a weight and in the middle, a thin bar. I think you guys are on the left end of that barbell. So you're a smaller manager, highly focused, good at active management, and you've made that choice even with the ETF launches you've done, right? That's the lane you've chosen and you're sticking with it. I think on the other side of that barbell and asset management, on, like the, on the right side, you've got the big supermarket asset managers, the multi-trillion dollar managers who've made a choice to be everything to everybody, but be good at it, right? They they got really good at marketing and distribution and wholesaling, and they've built infrastructure to be big. They're like an Amazon.com kind of model. I think everything in the middle is at risk 
uh, for for surviving long term yeah. because they're neither. They can't charge um, the premiums that are worth it at the boutique level, right? They're not good enough at something to command a premium and they're not big enough to survive on scale. So they sort of aren't relevant anymore. And I think they're struggling because not because they can't identify differentiations because they actually don't have it. Mm. And I think that's that's a problem that a lot of the kind of mid-size asset managers do have today. There's too many choices. That's kind of a precursor question is you have to have differentiation in order to identify it at some yeah. point, right? Like yeah. you have to be yeah. different to eventually identify it. Definitely. We talked about social a little bit, but as far as mediums that you've seen financial professionals have success in, I, I won't shoehorn an analogy in, but like, can you tell us a, a platform that, that is more or less successful, things people should gravitate towards or completely avoid? Can you give any thoughts there? Definitely. I mean, p- search is really important for most advisors, right? So paid search, someone's looking for the kind of service that you offer. You want to make sure that you show up. So if someone's sitting in Boca Raton, Florida and says like best wealth managers near me, that kind of a thing. You really want to have a strategy to show up in those moments because that's clearly a real point of sale opportunity that if you aren't set up for, you will miss out to the next person. And I think even in a business that's so referral based, like financial professionals, someone's always going to do that extra layer of due diligence and search and see what else is out there. So again, you want to make sure you show up there. Social media to me is the the next and very important piece uh, for two reasons. One is your ability to tell your story. You can't do that in a search result. And at the end of the day, you are selling a story, you're selling yourself, you're selling your personality and and what you're good at and why you you exist in the marketplace. And if you do your social media right, I think it could be a really powerful way to to cast a wider net. And, And it can also be a place where your current clients are liking or commenting, and then their networks will see the sort of work that you're doing. In a way, it's it's another client saying like, yeah, this is a, a good person, right? I, I'm liking what they're saying and their network sees that. So I think that's incredibly powerful too. For most advisors, doing anything bigger usually doesn't make sense. You can see you see a lot of good money thrown after bad, you know, buying print, big print um, articles and local lifestyle publications, that kind of thing. I, I don't know that that has the same effect as some of these other channels do, your money's probably better spent in organizing really good events, in conferences, education, that that kind of a thing where you're adding value. If you could put your futuristic hat on, like what do you see coming down the pike as, as, as changing with what we do in marketing or slash digital marketing, we'll, we'll keep them separate for now, over the next few years? I think the rise of expectations with digital how we all interact with the world, how we expect information immediately and access to information immediately will, and it already has, but I think will in time change even more the relationship you have with an advisor and how you expect to interact with them. So I think digital becomes a, another way to get in touch with and, and stay current with your advisor. And it doesn't just mean through conversation and text. It also means through information sharing, customized content, customized statements. I think all those sorts of things are inevitable and in, in coming. So is there anything that financial professionals need to do to prepare for that kind of new future? 
I think if you're if you're in a wirehouse, there are a lot of people who are really good at that, thinking about it and helping you yeah. prepare for it. So I I would definitely take the advice that that's going on inside of those places. If you're a little more independent and you're creating your own your sort of own technology future, I think staying current is very important and recognizing that you're in a marketplace that's shifting. You're obviously competing with other professionals, advisors, but you're also competing with other forms of digital advice and just making sure you know what's going on, I think is the number one most important thing. I think very related to that is the big mistake of chasing shiny objects. So just because something new comes out doesn't mean you need it. Doesn't mean you should go and go after it because the person next door is using it. It doesn't mean you should. And that's where being so grounded in your differentiation is so important because if you know why you exist and you know how you want to do business and you know the value that you bring, you know whether or not that tool is going to accelerate that. So if you're a financial professional and you've got 100 clients and they all get white glove service and you visit them in person four times a year, if that's your business, technology is probably going to hurt you in many ways more than help you. But if you're building a scale business and it's three, 4,000 clients and 3,000 of them you can't invest a lot of time into, then obviously technology becomes an enabler. So I think just always thinking about how it helps your purpose is really important. Daniel, really appreciate you coming on the show, A, and also helping Touchstone get better at marketing because we got to get our brand out there. We got to continue to grow as well. So really appreciate the work that you do with us. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. You have a great team, great CEO, great leadership, people who are passionate about what you do. And uh, it's been a pleasure to be a partner to you. So thank you. Excellent. We're going to transition to our Costanza Corner. This is The Whole Truth. Stick with us. And welcome back to the Costanza Corner, where we like to end the show on a high note. Steve, you're up. Well, thank you to to our friend Jake for hanging around as well. I think I've got a good one. I'm going to give you a, a Costanza Corner. I'll be the judge of that. That's true. I, I'm going to give you a Costanza Corner part two. So this is a this is a saga through multiple Costanza Corners. So where I left left you a couple of weeks ago, I had come home from my 10-year anniversary in uh, French Polynesia, and I had taken a dog uh, by the name of Rango from Rangaroa off of a remote island, back to the island of Tahiti, found a vet to host and treat the dog for 30 days. That spoke no English. Spoke no English. um, And my French is not good, as you'll recall. Um, and so when I last left you, it was at, uh, he was at the vet in Tahiti and my wife was about to fly out. We didn't know how hard it was going to be to get in the country or whatever. We're trying to get our shot, um, all the shots and the vet records and everything. How do you import a dog? And I brought this back up because after I did that Costanza corner, so many people reached out and said, how'd the dog do? Like, like, where are you with the dog? (laughs) Tell us how the story ends. Um, so that's why I'm bringing it back up. Turns out it was, uh, pretty easy, pretty easy. It's, just, it's such a masterclass by your wife getting two trips to French Polynesia. I just, I just, I applaud. Well, you'd think that it would be good to have your wife go to Tahiti twice, but when she's only going back for one night, that's a different story. And oh, gosh, why and she, only she go didn't back for one night. She didn't have the opportunity to take like an extended vacation the second time. But like two nights? Not even two? 
You know what, man? She she had one purpose. My wife's an angel, by the way. Let me just tell you. She's a, she's a true purpose. Her whole worry was, I got to get this dog. I got to sneak it into a hotel. No hotels out there allow dogs. So Not she's, yeah. Yeah. She's smuggling a dog into a hotel. And I got to figure out how to get this dog on a plane. She had to go through Los Angeles, not San Francisco, because the only uh, airline that would take her goes to L.A., not San Francisco, like a dog underneath the plane. Right. So my wife, she she's a knot. You know, it's not like she would have been able to sit on the beach That's for fair. two days. You know what I mean? That's fair. Steve, I assume it's not like a Great Dane. It's not a Great Dane. No. It's a smaller dog. Okay. The truth is, when we were on the island, Rango's probably... 25 pounds he's like you know a small little mutt um we would have loved to take a bigger dog but there was no chance we would have a carrier to be able to take a big dog and this one was the one that that stuck out to us so no it was not a great dane it was it was uh it was a smaller dog so anyway so that's why she didn't stay there multiple days so she basically came overnight one day back on a plane so she's all worried about going through customs um really like they looked at it for about a second and a half you know, which by the oh, way, good. have we figured out like, is customs a scam? Can I ask you guys this question? Is there any rhyme or reason to what happens when you go through customs? N- no, but it's, it's the randomization that makes it fearful, right? Because if you are doing something bad, you just, you just never know. Steve, if you have a great you, conscience, nothing to worry about. Yeah. Steve, are you saying you can do, you can have bad intentions and it's pretty easy to get through? Is that I, I guess what I would say is I've gone through customs a few different times and they always ask you these random questions. And sometimes they're like, well, who are you going to see? Like if I go to, I was in Amsterdam this year. Well, who, who are you going to see? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm here to see my friend, Mike. Well, where does Mike live? He lives in Amsterdam. Where does he live in Amsterdam? I don't know where he lives in Amsterdam. I don't know. Amsterdam. Like they ask you these questions. Am I going to answer them wrong? Like, I don't even know. Is it just like based on their answers? They would, this guy seems suspicious. Is that what you're saying, Jake? You, if you seem suspicious they will take you somewhere no i don't get it 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 is a good question too because we know the lines are long right so it's like how much vetting can you do when there's seventy thousand people waiting behind you to get through yeah customs i'm calling you out it's a scam okay you know you know what's gonna happen now the next time you go through yeah, the next because time you go the, through, you're going to get, yeah. That's get, exactly what happened. Right. I was about yeah. to say, the, the podcast reach, I'm not sure as to customs, but I feel like somehow they're going to get it. <laughs> that after bad that. juju you're putting out is. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but no, the the U.S. customs, very kind to of my wife, looked at the paperwork, easy to easy peasy. So uh, our our Rango. the, the Rango's the, at home. Rango's at home. He made it. He's here. He's adjusting. Adjusting just fine. He's getting used to all the other animals. MJ, happy all as happy as anything. Uh, loves our other dogs. Um, he's a great little dude. He's still a little skittish. Um, and something really cool about it. It's not really cool, but you know, it made us feel even better. So we took him to our vet, and the vet, you know, he had skin issues. A lot of those were treated. Whatever. Um, but he actually found heartworm. So. I'm happy that had we not taken him, he probably wasn't going to live another couple of months. So I feel extra good about, oh, nice. about little Rango. Hell of a high note there, Side. Well done. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Jake, for coming on both segments. We'll see you next time. Thank you all. You can find The Whole Truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. 
And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. All one word. RIA is an acronym for Registered Investment Advisor. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC. This commentary is for informational purposes only and should not be used or construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any security. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The prospectus and the summary prospectus contain this and other information about the fund. To obtain a prospectus or a summary prospectus, contact your financial professional or download and or request one at touchstoneinvestments.com slash resources or call Touchstone at 800-638-8194. Please read the prospectus and or summary prospectus carefully before investing.